1: New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, are proud to bring Dr. Brian Brege to this episode, where we will be exploring the Italian Renaissance. Brian's book, Tuscany in the Age of Empire, was published in 2021 and is a seminal work on the interworking of power, trade, and imperial expansion inside and outside of Tuscany at the time. Brian Brega is a historian of early modern Europe at Syracuse, and if you would like to introduce yourself to the NBN audience, please do so right now. Uh,
0: good afternoon. It's a real pleasure uh, to be here uh, and to have the opportunity to talk about my book. Um, I am an assistant professor of history at Syracuse University, uh, which I joined after being a, a postdoctoral fellow at Uh, Boston College and lecturing at Stanford. Uh, Stanford is where uh, I did my PhD. Um, I'm happy to announce, this is relatively uh, new news, that Tuscany in the Age of Empire uh, won uh, a book prize from the American Association for Italian Studies uh, this summer. So very excited about all of that. Um, And uh, looking forward to talking about the book
1: what brought you into the field of history oh i i suppose that i have
0: always uh, found I, I guess i have a kind of personal inclination to the subject going back to to childhood but in particular i i found the analytical quality of, of history trying to explain uh, not just what happened but why and, and how it might have happened differently so i guess uh, you know, under that label of contingency, uh, I've been fascinated by the peculiar and sort of non-intuitive shape of uh, the world as as it is now and as it has been. And, and history, I think, offers a, a wonderful guide for uh, how we got to where we are.
1: What have responses been like since the publication of Tuscany in the Age of Empire? Good, bad, or in between? Uh, So far,
0: so good. Uh, We're a little bit early on the reviews. Informally, I've heard positive things from people who've been um, writing reviews of books, but those are not even published, so I probably can't speak to them in an official capacity. Uh, It's very gratified to see uh, a number of positive blurbs that that came with the book itself uh as i mentioned earlier that the book prize from earlier this summer um was a really positive development uh and so you know i would say so far the response has, has been very positive um and, and of course that's gratifying this is a project uh, that was more or less a dozen years in the making so it, it's happy news for me that the people seem to think um, positively about it
1: your research process in make in making tuscany in the age of empire um what kind of archival materials did you work with um all that stuff
0: sure so uh the book is primarily based on research in let say diplomatic records and correspondence uh, florence his archives especially the, the archivio di stato uh, the state archives in florence uh, contain truly extraordinary records really uh, in, in many uh, geographies, a sort of complete series more or less of correspondence uh, tracking the sort of day-to-day activities at um, say the, the Tuscan embassy at the Spanish Habsburg court or, or elsewhere. Uh, so beyond Florence, which is really the, the archival heart of the project, I, I did work in in Venice, uh, in in Lisbon, in Madrid, at London, and um, perhaps most excitingly in in Goa in, in Western India, which contains uh, as a legacy of, of its role as the capital of the Portuguese Estado da India uh, many of the state records of the, the old Portuguese Empire in the East, uh, which you know Portugal retained until uh, the early nineteen sixties and. Uh, yeah as a consequence of a way that, that, uh, it became part of India. Many of those records have, have remained in India. Uh, and then you know, very happily after, um, after finishing the underlying dissertation and doing additional research, I had the chance to, uh, work with your Sini family papers at UCLA. Uh, and that gave a, a different cast, um, to, to the research that let me, um, piece together some of the stories from the perspective of uh, an an important and well-connected Roman noble family with multiple identities uh, uh, that appears frequently in the state records, but it was a sort of opportunity to to see things from uh, a different angle.
1: Are there any artifacts or, you know, research materials that stand out to you the most after doing your research? Uh, so,
0: in terms of archival materials, I mean, some of them are quite spectacular. There's uh, uh, some correspondence with uh, the Tsar in, in Russia, which is in gilded letters. Uh, although, of course, I, I ended up working with the Italian translation and transcription, which is much more sort of functional and doesn't have this the same, you know, uh, grandeur of appearance. Uh, part of the what has happened in the middle of the book. is is a look at uh, the way that the grand dukes begin this process of transforming Tuscany and in particular uh, Florence into uh, a new kind of capital. Some of the buildings that are are built then was famously the Uffizi, but also uh, the overhauling of uh, Palazzo Vecchio sort of imprints the image of this era very strongly into the, to the pre-existing core of Florence there. And so you have a number of sort of wondrous objects that they collected, some of which are still retained in, in those, those sites. So this, in particular, um, there was a map room really at the heart of Palazzo Vecchio, which is where the book begins, uh, in which the Medici Grand Dukes uh, had commissioned a series of maps uh, covering cabinets that, uh, you know, maps of the whole world and you know in the cabinets were, were meant to be objects from from those places. Now those objects are dispersed through, uh, through a variety of, of museums in Florence as later eras came up with different ways of classifying things. But if you're willing to sort of dig through the more obscure sections of Florence, you can still actually see a lot of the the stuff, the physical objects uh, that made it to, to Florence and, and when which appear in the book.
1: Going further into the book, uh, what was your periodization like? Uh, What's the timetable for you um, historically? Does this begin in the 1500s?
0: Yeah, so the 1560s is a really important sort of inflection point. Um, So the 1550s had seen a sort of last spasm of violence in the closing stages of the habsburg barois struggle, or in its more expansive readings, the sort of Italian wars, uh, that, that ends officially in 1559. In, in Tuscany, there's this ferocious struggle to, to conquer Siena, which is achieved by by 55. Uh, and so I, I argue that for a variety of reasons to do with the handover of power, Cosimo de Medici to uh, his son and successor Francesco and uh, his acquisition of a new title as Grand Duke of Tuscany and so forth, that the 1560s mark a a new period of domestic peace in Tuscany that permits uh this upstart regime uh which has is you know trying to in effect forge a new country on on the ashes of uh these pre-existing republican states um to to look outwards to to be confident in their domestic security uh and to to explore uh, the possibilities of of engaging with and perhaps uh, participating in in imperial projects overseas, uh, and and I argue on the, on the tail end that the sixteen tens, so sixteen oh nine, Ferdinando dies, and, and some of these uh, policies that that the book explores sort of persist into the early years of his successors' reign, but uh, the the context of the the Thirty Years' War. And of the, the shifting balance of power in the, in the Mediterranean as um, the, the apparent weakness of the Ottoman Empire is in, in fact, uh, proved to be a little bit illusory, that this moment when the, the Grand Duchy uh, or, or those who were, who were guiding the Grand Duchy uh, seemed like it, it might have a, an opportunity to play a much more a sort of expansive role in foreign policy sort of closes. Uh, And Tuscany opts for a different strategy, one of political neutrality and, uh, you know, eventually sort of symbolically abandons its fleet and and, um, shifts inwardly. So I think that there's a sort of window of opportunity there of about a half century from, from the 1560s to the early 1610s.
1: Can you take your audience on a tour of Tuscany? Um, it seems like, and it is really more than a single city, um, mm-hmm. Vienna, Florence, uh, what areas do you focus on um, and what should we think about?
0: Sure. So Tuscany is more or less the, the same size as Connecticut for an American audience. Uh, it's a pretty compact area. The Grand Duchy of Tuscany, which is the state that I'm, I'm working on, uh, doesn't control all of Tuscany. Uh, in particular, it's missing the important independent Republic of Lucca, but also a variety of coastal territories, um, most sort of strategically significantly, when Tuscany acquires, or when what was then the the Republic on the way to being Duchy of Florence, uh, acquires Siena, uh, it has to give up the coastal territories uh, into a Something called the presidial states, presidial from Spanish presidio or fortress, uh, to, to the Spanish Habsburgs who really control a fair bit of the coastline. So the Grand Duchy is really focused on the the valley of the Arno River. Uh, this goes uh, up from Pisa through Florence and through a variety of tributaries uh, to to places uh, like. Prato and Pistoia and so forth, and then it extends beyond Florence up up to Arezzo. Uh, so that the Arno is is the sort of key river here. It's uh, as as others have noted, a pretty unsatisfying river. Uh, it's it's not really navigable for a lot of it. It's subject to devastating floods, but it also more or less dries up in the summer. Uh, so it's it's useful in ways, but it's not a a, a river, say like the Thames uh, that provides. Uh, a reliable transportation route or anything like that. It's it's a much more erratic kind of. It's been described as a sort of mountain torrent. Uh, and then, in addition to that, the, uh, the the major acquisition is is Siena. Siena is um, once had been a real contender for being the leading city uh, in Tuscany. Uh, what happens under the Grand Duchy, which really changes the geography, and the a sort of mark of, of great creativity. Uh, is that they, they in effect, create a new city. They take a fishing village, more or less, uh, on the coast near Pisa. Pisa is increasingly no longer suitable uh, to do with silting and a variety of changes to to the environment there um, as as a major port in and of itself. Uh, Pisa basically is reimagined as, as Tuscany's university city. Uh, and, and instead, a, a new... Freeport is developed, we'll talk about it perhaps later, but uh, in, in Livorno, which is, which is also known as, as, as Leghorn in uh, some other English documents. But Livorno is, is the sort of the new boom town, And it starts off uh, as, as a small, heavily fortified space uh, and will eventually grow to, to be one of the, the larger cities in Tuscany and, and a major Mediterranean port.
1: Archaeology, is that something that's really important to you? Uh, so I'm fascinated with it. It's not
0: something that's central to the methods of, of this particular book in the sense of, of things that are, you know, in that kind of classic sense of uh, things that are buried. Um, the material culture history in, in the broader sense um, that, that archaeologists engage with is pretty central Uh, to the project as it is a sort of site-based engagement um, with a historical past. So uh, many of these particular sites, especially the villas and uh, urban structures, are are still present. They're often uh, present in a way in which a layer of, or many layers of subsequent building and renovation uh, have, have, you know, been... Placed on top of them, uh, as these are living sites, and, and as needs have changed over time, and so some of the, the exciting work has been to kind of uh, watch. Mostly, again, my engagement with this is is mostly through the publications of results, uh, the sort of finding of of earlier layouts of Tuscany, and a kind of re. Uh, a re-engagement for instance or a new appreciation of say the the network of villas um that's present and then you know again w- we sometimes have the, the physical objects that uh are an important part of the middle sections of the book but uh, and sometimes we, all we have is, is the textual records uh, and so there's this sort of interesting interplay between uh the physical objects and uh, the records of the objects, and an attempt, in effect, to to match the one and the other.
1: What are some of the predominant means of travel and communication during the Renaissance? Uh, well, it changes quite importantly during the Renaissance. So this is quite exciting.
0: Um, so, uh, on land, the the key development is uh, really carriages. This isn't to say that they're invented then. Of course, they've been around uh, in various forms um, for several hundred years earlier. But the second half of the 16th century, as uh, a friend and colleague of mine will be showing in a a book of her own relatively soon uh, named Rachel Madura, uh, Rachel shows the the growth of the the European postal network. Uh, And the postal network depends on a new road system and in particular on um, or that road system then really creates the possibility uh, for the kind of carriages uh, that really facilitate and speed up ground transportation. Uh, but the bigger developments are at sea, uh, and you know this is the era that that sees the developments of uh, on the early side of caravels and carracks, galleons, uh, and by the the early seventeenth century uh Tuscany, which, which is not, you know, at the cutting edge of shipbuilding, has uh, a variety of, of northern European shipbuilders building galleons and ships known as Bertone, which are basically northern European style sailing ships to complement the traditional Mediterranean galleons and round ships that they had inherited from from the medieval period uh, the upshot of this is that even tuscany which is just not a traditional maritime power uh it is able to operate um oceanic uh shipping um actually there's a tuscan galleon which is, is destroyed in the spanish armada uh, but it's one of the, the you know the, the most heavily gunned ships in the uh in the armada itself right so tuscany is 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 playing in this sort of game. Uh, and of course, many others bring their own ships to, to Livorno, which is just which is to set up as, a, um, as an effective port for, for long-distance shipping. So, uh, you know, at some level, of course, this is the, the traditional pre-modern complex of relying on wind and ore for transportation by sea and by, you know, animals' foot and uh, canal for transportation by land. Um, but all of those techniques are are improving in ways that uh, really open up space, speed up travel, make it safer and more reliable uh, over the course of, of the Renaissance period, and in particular in the sixteenth century.
1: Agriculture, um, in particular, irrigation and hydro hydrology methods mm. does that make sense into your book? It, it comes in occasionally. That there. Grand Duchy of Tuscany has
0: a kind of uh, developmentalist state idea. Some of the things work and some don't. So they're, they're engaged in uh, draining projects which are are ultimately not particularly successful and, and really will have to wait um, until the modern period. Uh, more successfully, the, the Grand Dukes are engaged in, in supporting mulberry cultivation for, for silk production. The parts that appear in my book are are twofold. Uh, one is the, um, we might say the, the global agriculture that Tuscany is engaged with, uh, in, in the early sections that the grand dukes of Tuscany are uh, engaged with trying to, to take over, um, pepper distribution peppers, of course, not something that they can grow effectively in Tuscany, but, uh, it is an agricultural product and, and a very high value one. Uh, at that. Uh, and likewise, uh, they, they do eventually get it set up, um, uh, not on the scale that they, they have been going for, but uh, there's an effort to integrate uh, Brazilian sugar production with Tuscan sugar refining. Again, this is a kind of early colonial framework uh, that that sees Tuscany as a sort of refining center. Uh, but there's also a vision of taking the plants from, from the wider world and integrating them in Tuscany. And here, Uh, both Pisa and Padua have good claims for being the first uh, botanical garden in Europe. This is from the the 1540s. Uh, And both the botanical garden and especially this network of villas, both Medici villas and those of of other Florentine patricians, become engaged in this project of uh, acquiring exotic plants from around the world. Uh, and, and attempting to to grow them in Tuscany. Uh, so uh, a Florentine traveler, uh, in fact, somebody who goes all the way around the world, named Francesco Carletti, on, on whom uh, I, I'm i doing a new project as well, um, who appears very prominently in this book, uh, sends back to Tuscany um, citrus seeds from Japan, his time in Japan. And uh, it has sort of projects for or, or suggestions that perhaps Tuscany should grow, for instance, Nopal cactus uh, with the sort of tacit hope of setting up a Cochineal industry. Cochineal is a, a form of um, insect based dye stuff. It's very uh, high value sort of. Um, so there's all these, these visions for for agricultural development. Uh, most of them don't have a really transformative effect. Uh, it's a period of, of prosperity and growth in Tuscany, but, but not um, but agriculture is, is probably not at the center of
1: There is an emphasis on the Spanish Habsburg Alliance mm-hmm. um, and France. Can you tell your audience more about the Spanish dynasty and why they're so significant?
0: Yeah, so the 16th century is often described as the era of Spanish Italy. Uh, so the Spanish rule about two-fifths of Italy. And here we should clarify what we mean by the Spanish. It's the Spanish Habsburgs. Uh, the dynastic claims come mostly from the Crown of Aragon and has to do with the results of uh, the Italian wars. The, the upshot is that the kings of spain also rule uh sardinia sicily uh southern italy which is known as the the kingdom of naples the regno uh they control the the coastal territory for much of Tuscany and these presidial states and um milan so they're very locally powerful and they have a lot of uh influence over states that are not part of the spanish empire but are part of the sort of what has been described as the sort of Spanish world, uh, places like Genoa, the Papal State, uh, and uh, Florence. Now, in, in Florence, this is because um, Spanish imperial armies restore the Medici to power after they're expelled, both in 1512. The Medici have been expelled from power in 1494. Uh, they're restored to power in 1512. They're expelled again in 1527. And, and there's a long siege of Florence in 1529 to 30. Uh, and Spanish troops are instrumental in uh, protecting the Medici dynasty against exile armies and, on two occasions in the subsequent years and also uh, in in the conquest of Siena, which the, the Grand Dukes hold as a fief of... Um, uh, well, it's a sort of complicated situation, but it, it's officially an imperial thief. Um, but it, it, in effect, becomes part of, of the Spanish Habsburg inheritance. Uh, okay, so there's there's this sort of military-political connection. Um, the Medici also marry into an important Spanish dynasty. Um, this is the, that of the Toledo. They're not a royal dynasty, but... Uh, that the one of the Toledo is a very important viceroy of Naples, uh, and uh, Eleonora of Toledo's sons, uh, Francesco and Ferdinando, are are the sort of key figures, and, and in that sense, of course, they're they're half Spanish. Uh, Tosny is perhaps if we take it out of the kind of dynastic and, and immediate Italian context, uh, the Spanish Habsburgs especially after the, the Tuscan financed invasion of Portugal in 1580, uh, have a claim, one which is contested, but um, reasonably effective to have in, in the 1580s, the, the only European overseas empire. Uh, so at this point, the Spanish, of course, have their, their extensive possessions uh, in Mexico and Peru and the Caribbean and, and um, are extending their, uh, scope of operations in both North and South America. Uh, it, but also in, in the Philippines and various fortresses in North Africa and in the low countries. Um, but the Portuguese acquisition gives them also connections, not just to Brazil, but to the global network of Florida, of, of Portuguese bases. Uh, along the coasts of Africa, South Asia, the the Middle East, Southeast Asia, and and out to Macau. Uh, So if you want to go to the wider world, really the Spanish Habsburgs and the Portuguese, and of course after 1580, those are one and the same thing, although with some complexities, um, are are really your best bet. France plays an important role in the later stages as uh, Tuscany tries to diversify its options. Uh, this is particularly under Ferdinando, who tries to use Tuscan money uh, to cultivate a, a set of French connections. This uh, culminates not just in, in the, his own marriage to the Lorraine, but but perhaps most famously in, in Marie de Medici's um, position as as the Queen of France. Uh, so the the notion there is not that the French, we're going to be in a position to help because France at this time has been uh, beset by a, a series of internal conflicts known as, as the wars of religion, a series of civil conflicts, quite bloody affairs in, in France, which really cripple its its ability to act internationally in, in the late 16th century. Um, but it does serve as a bit of a counterweight to, to sort of overweening Spanish demands. And, and this is where Tuscany has to... To navigate, um, you know, as a relatively small power between two very powerful uh, nearby states, uh, and in the end, they, they do that fairly successfully.
1: Looking outside of Spain and France, um, can you tell us more about different trade routes to you know different places like Britain, the Mediterranean, Germanic regions, Asia, Africa? Um, yeah, absolutely. So.
0: Uh, this period sees, especially in the, in the 1590s, that what has been described as the, perhaps a little melodramatically as the Northern European invasion of the Mediterranean, uh, it actually begins in a much more benign sense. Um, there are grain shortages in the Mediterranean in, in the 1590s, a variety of reasons for this, uh, both short term, but also this is a result of, of the, um, slow but building population uh, recovery from, from the disastrous 14th and 15th centuries. Uh, and, and there are increasingly uh, large and available grain surpluses in northern Europe, uh, in particular coming out of the Baltic region. Uh, and Livorno's first sort of mission is to serve as a grain port to, to relieve the um, grain shortages. Now, the, the Grand Dukes are, are, are actually do quite a good job here. They're, they're well aware that the harvest is, is not going to work and that they need to secure uh, the grain supplies. And they do so in, in a timely fashion, so they avoid um, really significant difficulties there. This becomes the sort of basis for uh, Livorno developing in the, in the 1590s, and originally, uh, as a sort of key For Northern European trade. This has much to do with Livorno's regulations, and and here I would point to the work of Corey Tazzara and Francesca Travolato and others uh, as a free port. Uh, And Livorno's uh, rules this is uh, something which, as Corey has shown, takes some time to develop, but eventually Livorno becomes known as a site of, of religious tolerance to do with a series of, of grand ducal decrees called the Livornine in, in the 1590s uh, and as a, a place where goods can be brought in and out uh, with, with minimal taxation. Uh, this allows it to function very effectively as a base of operations for uh, northern European merchants and the northern European merchants uh, but also northern European pirates and religious exiles and all sorts of people like this Really provide the Grand Duchy of Tuscany with access to an alternative set of trade routes uh, and shipping connections. Uh, this facilitates the the attempted trade agreement uh, with with Muscovy with with Russia. Uh, also, uh, it is the presence of, of English sailors that that permits Tuscany's own uh, transoceanic Uh, expedition to the Amazon and the Orinoco. Uh, And there's a proposal that the the Dutch offer to allow Tuscany to participate in the Dutch East India Company, uh, which of course trades directly uh, with the Indian Ocean world. Uh, Most of these proposals in their sort of more grandiose forms don't work. What does work is uh, a persistently... um, strong tie to, to Northern Europe on the one side and, and increasingly uh, strong commercial connections in, in the Eastern Mediterranean uh, in, uh, on the other. Uh, Hasini also has uh, a sort of complicated and frequently violent relations with the, the states of North Africa, uh, but is engaged in a fair bit of trade with Morocco and on and off uh, with other states in North Africa. It, it's also engaged in, in a fair bit of violence with... Um, the Corsair states, uh, like Algiers uh, of North Africa, which are under Ottoman protection. So, you know, Tuscany looks in, in many um, different directions, and, and Livorno is really the, the key port um, for that.
1: Would you say that there was a Silk Road, so to speak, that ran through Europe other scholars may not know about? Or do you want to highlight one?
0: Oh well, so the the classic Silk Road is a uh, an idea developed in the, the late nineteenth century uh, and is really uh, most appropriately applied um, nearly a millennium or more earlier to to talk about early trade routes across Eurasia. But I'm going to here sort of having acknowledged that um, say that. Yeah, actually, there there is, in in a different sense, one which is um, shorter and follows different routes. Uh, Silk is is a really important trade good. Uh, It moves on really two major axes from Iran, which is a a really key production center in the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, One is, is straight across the Ottoman Empire to Aleppo, uh, and then uh, either across Anatolia or uh, to ports in what are now Syria and Lebanon, uh, to to Mediterranean shipping. Uh, but the Ottomans and Safavids, the Safavids are the, the dynasty that rule in Iran, uh, have famously terrible relations and fight numerous bitter wars. This has to do. Uh, among other things, with a, a Sunni-Shia split, as uh, the Sunni Ottomans and, and Shia Safavids uh, struggle over control of the, the territory between them. There are many other things at play. But this motivates the the Safavids to, to look in two different directions. One is, is to the sea, to the, to the Portuguese trading through Hormuz. Uh, it's an offshore, I don't know, a barren offshore island that functions – If we can stretch a point in in some ways like a Hong Kong, a kind of offshore trading place, uh, primarily important for uh, the markets that it gives access to. Um, And then, you know, and this is the part that that uh, this is also going to be key for a number of diplomatic connections between the Safavids and various European courts. There's a new route that opens up across Russia, really across the Caspian uh, and, and this has to do with the expansion of, of Muscovy and in, in the late 16th century. Um, and in particular uh, the, the conquest of, of Astrakhan and Kazan, which uh, opens up the Volga river region uh, and, and the development of our uh, or on the white sea. Uh, what that lets you do is it lets you go to um, Iran by way of, of um, northern russia really either going through the baltic or or if you're saying tarconjal leaving from a place like london uh, or amsterdam and sailing uh around the the top of norway to to northern russia and, and then heading down uh through the river systems there uh to iran so there are um that's a kind of politically motivated route right you wouldn't bother doing that if you could follow the 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 shorter, faster route across Iraq and Syria, but then, as in many other periods, uh, that geography has been um, militarily contested, and, and uh, internal frontiers can often make the sort of logically easier transit route um, not, not a practical
1: one. And how did Florence and Tuscany reinvent themselves as capitals? Um, what was the actual capital of the world? Was it Italy or was it, you know, a metaphorical place or was it real?
0: Okay. So Florence is the, we might call it the, the, the capital of the grand duchy. Now the grand duchy is like so many of these polities in this period, it's a dynastic state. Uh, so it's officially has two components. It's the Republic of Florence and the Republic of Siena of which uh, the Medici dynasty are sort of, the dukes and therefore the, the grand dukes of Tuscany. So it has this. And the grand duchy is sort of overlaid on the pre-existing juridical status of um, of the existing states. So this is sort of, in effect, as territories are agglomerated into regional states or empires, uh, be that something small like Tuscany or vast like the Spanish Habsburg Empire. the, the European pattern is largely to leave the pre-existing rights and political structures intact. Uh, so the, the question of what's the capital is, is sometimes a complicated one. If we mean, though, where is the center of government and administration, then um, then Florence is, is certainly the capital of Tuscany. Of course, there is no such thing as, as Italy as a country, uh, although of course it exists as a geographical area, linguistic region and cultural region, but but uh, it's divided among numerous countries, um, each of which have their own uh, laws and weights and measures and customs. And so uh, in that sense, of course, there is there is no capital in, in Italy, let alone uh, in Europe. Or rather, that's to say that there are many capitals, right, that um, Venice and Genoa and Florence are all capitals of, of separate countries. Um, in terms of the the metaphorical standing, I, I make a claim in *Tussling the Age of Empire* that Florence functions, and, and this is, certainly needs to be understood in, in the metaphorical sense. as a sort of shadow capital for for the Spanish Habsburg empires, and and what I mean by that is that it develops a whole series of um, intellectual institutions, collecting institutions, so villas. Uh, What we might see as sort of proto-museums, botanical garden, uh, and and all sorts of other apparatus, including uh, the sort of uh, Medici papal uh, printing press, the the so-called Oriental press, um, that are more commensurate with uh, a state that has overseas possessions, uh, which of course Tuscany does not. Uh, so there's a sort of uh, institutional development there which is contingent on having abundant access uh, to people who do have an empire, right, to the Spanish and Portuguese, uh, but to others besides. Uh, and and there Tuscany is trying to serve as, as a sort of uh, – what has been described in, in some ways as a sort of center of calculation, to take Latour's phrase, or as a, as a place wherein uh, the – intellectual project of collecting and understanding the world um, can take place. And then where the, the refined products from that can be uh, redistributed, uh, both through diplomatic and other gifting networks. And so it becomes a kind of place where you would go, right? A place to to go and see the Florentine Codex or the earliest copy of the Charnemes, pointed out to me after after the book came out, so that's not in there, but should be perhaps, Uh, or uh, wondrous objects brought back from China and India and the Americas and so forth, and to find uh, experts, people with the linguistic skills and um, scientific knowledge, uh, to give you what was then the leading sort of view of how to interpret the world. So, um, yeah, different I suppose different definitions are going to produce somewhat different answers to that question.
1: In what ways then is power overall being represented in your book and in terms of something that's reigning whether it be an actual person or a group of people is that part of is that a part of your argument? Yeah, so the the Grand Duchy of Tuscany is an absolute monarchy.
0: Um now uh, what do we mean by that? Absolutism as an idea has been contested um, in 17th century France uh, and so forth. Uh, but this vein of argument that in historiography, which contends and which I sort of build on, uh, that the states of central Italy, in particular uh, Tuscany and the papal state, um, are pretty... Uh, influential exemplars of a sort of new absolutist regime and that many of the policies that you see uh, implemented or, or in, in say, the second half of the 17th century in France uh, have precedence in places like uh, Florence and Rome in the late 16th century. Uh, power, so domestically power is exerted um, by a, uh, a grand Ducal court, which is pretty effective at co-opting uh, the patrician elite. Uh, there's a fair bit of violence in the mid 16th century as uh, those who cannot be reconciled to the regime go into exile or are killed or uh, otherwise Uh, squeezed out of power. Uh, The the Medici dynasty is quite effective in in the next generation of getting most of their descendants on board with the Medici regime and incorporating them. Uh, But they also do a a much better job than the the Republic of Florence had done before. I suppose this is an important element of of their power base, of um, switching the way that power works in Tuscany. So as Machiavelli and, and others had, had noted, um, places like Florence and Venice had operated as as little empires, uh, which existed primarily to privilege uh, a narrow political elite in Florence itself. And even Florence in its more expansively democratic phases um, had having a contest of power over sort of which privileged Florentine males would have the right to, to act access offices and rule over other areas in Tuscany. Uh, the Medici regime really just sort of, again, imposed on top of of these existing structures. And, and it looks uh, to men of talent and ambition um, from mostly the rest of Tuscany. So, from, uh, so they, they incorporate Florentine patricians, but they also look for talented people from places like Volterra or Pisa or Arezzo or uh, who had been excluded by... Uh, and so there's an attempt in some sense to, to create a kind of territorial state. Uh, power, oper- of course, also operates internationally. Uh, and here, you know, the Grand Duchy is tries to exert power militarily. That's just, uh, a really important component of the third section to my book. Um, but also financially. Uh, and Florence is, is a really important financial center, not the leading one, that would be Genoa. Uh, but the, the Medici, in particular, attempt to use their the sort of the package of um, their navy and uh, the ability to offer uh, loans that can sometimes become grants, in effect, uh, to punch above their weight in the mediterranean and and further afield
1: is there a philosopher that you write about
0: um in the like classic sense of uh narrow sense of a philosopher no in a broader sense of um intellectuals who play an important role uh One of the figures that that I'm particularly excited about is is Filippo Sassetti. Uh, Sassetti begins his career, um, was originally trained as a merchant and then uh, has the opportunity to abandon that and and go to university uh, and become an important literary figure. And then a change in his family's finances and and connections to the Medici court mean that he returns to being a merchant, but of a particularly uh, extraordinarily well-educated sort. Uh, and he goes to India as an agent of the pepper monopoly. And it's in India that there, well, you know, primarily he is, he's meant to be purchasing pepper and sending it to Lisbon. He's based in Goa and, and Kochi. that uh, he has the opportunity to do a fair bit of what at the period when we described as sort of natural philosophy or m- more broadly um, intellectual investigations into the um, to local... Plants um, to questions of geography and cartography, and perhaps most interestingly into into questions of language. So Sassetti is one of the the first to remark the connection between Greek and Latin, of course, which you've been trained in classically in Florence, uh, and and Sanskrit, uh, which becomes one of the key observations. Something that is developed much more systematically in the eighteenth century. Uh, to the understanding uh, of the the Indo-European languages and the reality that, in fact, North Indian and Mediterranean languages like this are, in fact, closely related uh, linguistically. So he has come up with a real thing. Uh, You know, the Medici are also um, quite key uh, players in, you know, again, as I'm trying to argue in this intellectual capital, uh, in the intellectual scene in uh, in Italy, most importantly, as, as my uh, thesis advisor and, and uh, has has written about before, and I develop further uh, in this book um, in the relationship with Ulisse Aldrovandi uh, and some of the other sort of key intellectual figures in places like Bologna. Uh, so, in that sense, it's a there are a number of, of figures who are who are intellectually interesting, um, but none who are uh, sort of classically uh, a philosopher, uh, if that makes sense.
1: And how prevalent is the topic of war in your book? Um, yeah. It's a big deal. Um, it's, it's by no means a military history. So
0: in that sense, um, it's uh, a... It's a story in which war uh, creates strategic uh, realities and those strategic realities are, are the, the boundaries within which Tuscany has to operate. Okay. So let me be a little bit more specific. Um, the the book begins with the, really the wake of the Italian wars and of the, this military situation, which has been radically transformed from a series of really independent city states that we see as key to, um, 15th century renaissance and which is sometimes undescribed as a sort of balance of power uh, to one in which the Spanish Habsburgs have, have a dominant military presence uh, this uh, military situation uh, in the Mediterranean you know sort of the, its fundamental strategic basis remains um, undisturbed Tuscany in fact actually participates pretty uh, aggressively in the Spanish Habsburg uh, Naval Alliance and Tuscan ships serve with the Spanish Habsburgs and this appears quite prominently early in the book uh, and of course as I've mentioned before uh, participate in the, the Spanish Armada. Um, in, in the early sections of the book I'm primarily interested in this set of military activities as creating diplomatic leverage uh, for the Grand Duchy of Tuscany uh, an, an opportunity to, to demonstrate how useful they are um, to, the, to the Spanish Habsburgs. In the third section of the book, I really moved to a discussion of, of hard power uh, and Tuscany's efforts to sort of go it alone. Uh, this involves a series of amphibious strikes around the Mediterranean, uh, most prominently in Algeria, Uh, where where Tuscany captures the the port of Bona, and and takes a a haul of of prisoners, which they enslave. So it's quite a grim story. Uh, They're also involved in in naval raiding throughout the Eastern Mediterranean, and an effort to seize Cyprus with a fairly substantial amphibious assault force, a few thousand troops and two dozen ships or so. Uh, And it's this... Uh, military activity in the eastern Mediterranean that gives them credibility to negotiate with the Safavid Shah and with rebel regimes in, in places like Aleppo in Syria uh, and, and to cast themselves as, you know, potentially key military allies and arms suppliers. For the many different uh, local actors Um, In the Ottoman world, we're discontented with the way that the empire is working. Um, This has to do with a variety of things, but mostly to do with war exhaustion as the Ottomans are are, um, fighting a two-front war with the Austrian Habsburgs in Europe, so-called Long Turkish War, uh, and with the the Safavid regime, um, uh, really along that that whole axis from, from what is... Uh, now, uh, Iraq and Syria, up through through eastern Turkey and Armenian Azerbaijan, uh, and it's it's that contest and in particular the rebellions there that give the, the Grand Duchy of Tuscany the the idea that uh, using its navy in a very aggressive way uh, might offer it the kind of diplomatic credibility that it needed to um, to negotiate for itself a a better position in the mediterranean and this is something that is uh ultimately not as successful as they had hoped it would be It has less to do with the again this is where you know tuscany is not totally in control of its own fate uh the key battle is is one that the tuscans aren't involved in uh, and it's when their um uh, really important rebel army um based in Aleppo is is defeated at arushavasi in uh, In 1606. Um, And and this really, um, it really sort of closes the door on on Tuscany's sort of military adventurism.
1: And imperialism, as you write about it, what is the motivating force behind the imperialistic policies? Um, Is it religion? Is it the Catholic or Protestant reformations? What is it?
0: It's a good question. Um, and there's a, perhaps a couple of different things at play. I mean, at one level, of course, the, the Grand Duchy of Tuscany is a, a counter Reformation Catholic state. It's uh, one of its major desiderata in the uh, military activities that it's engaged in and diplomatic activities it's engaged in the Eastern Mediterranean is to become the protectors of the holy sites in Jerusalem and the Holy land and to, uh, facilitate the movement of Catholic pilgrims. And, uh, but Tuscany's situation is complicated here because a key portion of its naval power, uh, and of its trading connections are with, um, northern Europeans, some of whom are English Catholic renegades, but many of whom are uh, English and Dutch Protestants. Uh, Tuscany works quite happily with um, both Sunni and uh, rebels in Syria, uh, with the Druze, uh, with the Shia in, um, uh, in Iran, and uh, is perfectly happy to sign uh, uh deal with uh, russian orthodox so the in, in in muscovy so um the the religious objectives are are not a simple story um Pustinous likewise has kind of internal ambivalence where domestically it both has an unusually uh indeed almost uniquely uh, religiously tolerant um Port of Livorno, but it also operates a domestic branch of, of the Inquisition. Um, so sort of where you are in Tuscany and what kind of social standing you have uh, will, will impact whether or not these these various religious uh, imperatives are, are going to be key there. So what else are they trying to, to get out of this? Well, classically, they're also trying to, to pick up uh, territory not in the Mediterranean it's very interesting is that the military activities in the Middle East explicitly um, disclaim any effort to to control uh, territory um, and uh, instead they they want uh, trading rights and and a new political order there uh, but but in the Atlantic world they really do attempt on a number of occasions to set up a um, might say sort of sub-colonial regimes, places where the the Grand Dukes would hold in fief um, various territories. This has to do with the way that the Portuguese empire in particular is organized. It has a variety of uh, sub-imperial territories known as donatory captaincies. These involve basically um, passing on governing rights to mostly trusted Portuguese aristocrats who will Come up with the capital to uh, and sort of organizational skill to run these territories on their own on behalf of the, the Portuguese Crown, uh, and already a Tuscan family, the the uh, have uh, have picked up one of these captaincies in Brazil, and, and the the Grand Duchy of Tuscany is interested in in sort of joining the Spanish Empire in that same capacity as. Um, uh, as trying to in effect buy in to the Spanish and Portuguese empires. So uh, in terms of imperialism as a whole, I, you know, the, the, it, this is not in any way a, a period that is um, is pretty critical of it, quite the opposite. Uh, the, the Grand Duchy would like to participate in an overseas empire uh, and uh, uh, the Medici would have been happier to have their, their own overseas possessions. But I, they are um, at the same time they're they're not making grand imperial claims the way that say the Spanish Habsburgs them, themselves are doing. So um, Tuscany is is not in the end an imperial power, though uh, it probably would have liked to be.
1: And why should readers care about cooperation um, and the idea of a cooperative empire, as you write about?
0: Uh, so. The idea of cooperative empire is an interesting one, I think, because uh, it shows an alternative perspective on the way that um, power can be constructed. And this has to do with the role of small powers and um, alliances. So uh, the Tuscans pitch on numerous different occasions, opportunities for them to participate in um, the Spanish Habsburg uh, imperial domains and and actually likewise the the Dutch overseas uh, possessions. And the the notion here is that rather than uh, fight over exclusive access to overseas possessions, uh, that a kind of negotiated arrangement um, might be made wherein People who are not part of the empire could nonetheless uh, invest in it, to trade, travel, uh, engage in commerce, and generally support the empire without actually being of it. This is a, a contested terrain and one that they're not ultimately successful in navigating. Um, the Spanish Habsburgs and the Portuguese, likewise, make quite dramatic exclusive claims to travel, to trade, to access to the wider world uh, and to the access to to their empires. Uh, And these are cast as really prohibiting anybody who's not either Spanish or Portuguese from from really being present in their empire or the wider world as a whole. Uh, Tuscany's pitch is in effect to – to open up the, the imperial space rather, um, by the Spanish and Habsburgs or by the, the Portuguese, rather than, than to contest it uh, directly, which is not something that they're, they're ever going to succeed in doing. When that the Spanish Habsburgs, in effect, say no, uh, they're really uh, left to deal with uh, those who are more militarily powerful than Tuscany, Players like the Dutch and the English and the French um, who are unwilling to accept exclusion uh, from the wider world. And so who fight to develop their own, to put it in kind of modern terms, their own walled gardens, their own mercantilist empires that they uh, control and that they also seek to make exclusive. Uh, and, and you know the, the Dutch had had also been part of the, the Spanish system before. They are they're alienated by Spanish religious taxation policy. Uh, so that there's a way in which you could imagine a kind of alternative early modern approach, uh, one that that did not sort of have to descend into uh, this system of competitive. Uh, exclusive Imperial states and we might see the same kind of pattern between an open and closed architecture not just of Empire but of other kinds of valuable ecosystems and whether you know you, you ought to to uh, try to to maintain exclusive control for certain privileged groups or Open things up to others, and what are the costs and benefits of that? I think that that's more broadly applicable um, in in many settings.
1: And if the Tuscany Empire were around today, um, as you write about in the book, what kind of policies and global trade ideas do you think would they would they be promoting?
0: Well, the Grand Duchy, uh, of course, is operating in a, a 16th century framework, so. Uh, you you might think that 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 framework would, would no longer be present and it would be radically different, but actually I think we can see uh, a variety of, of players now who are, who are doing uh, similar sorts of things. Now internationally, Tuscany is of course it's a pro business regime. Uh, It's one that is interested in increasing international trade, um, Corrie Tatsara has, I think, correctly described Livorno as a a special economic zone. Uh, We're, of course, familiar with special economic zones and free ports uh, from the recent development of China. Uh, And in fact, we might see a fair bit of this developmentalist economic policy that's internally differentiated between some parts of the state and others, and in which the state plays an activist investment role, whether that's what we see in China or in a place like the, the United Arab Emirates, um, uh, sort of pro business regimes that are not necessarily free market, which is, I suppose, an important distinction, uh, and which maintain internal barriers for their own internal political, uh, reasons. So, you know, internationally, what, what Huston was, was going for was, uh, strongly oriented to the sort of commercial prosperity and trade access. Um, and we might see a, a place like the, the UAE as, as trying a similarly ambitious policy, but one that gets distracted as Tuscany's did um, by sort of other ideological commitments.
1: And how is citizenship being viewed um, overall in Europe at the time?
0: Uh, it's a really interesting question. It's, it's a quite a contested thing. And it, it, as somebody like Tamar Herzog has shown, is uh, it's in part contingent on, on your class status. And is in fact, in some ways, we might say ironically, it's in, in some ways hardest to to transition across frontiers and get a new citizenship. Uh, if you're at a really senior level, you would think, well, this would facilitate matters because you'd have the ability to, to buy privileges from various states or kingdoms. And, and indeed, you can do that. Um, but there's also a lot of sort of protective local resistance to admitting outsiders, admitting outsiders to offices, admitting outsiders to citizenship or to access to, um, and again, if we want to think about a modern example, perhaps the, the politics of, um, the quo system or something like this in China, there's a lot of sort of local city civil, uh, Civil rights, we might say, welfare benefits, access to common resources, um, which are contingent not just on, on to which particular king or republic one is subject, but also to your uh, connection to specific, um, you know, specific cities or specific uh, rural areas. Um, it's overall quite. Sticky uh, so there's uh, a wonderful set of examples of second and third and even fourth generation Florentines who are, are operating in Brazil uh, who find that they uh need to to write to the uh to the Grand Duke or to his diplomatic representatives uh, in in the Iberian Peninsula uh to have their status as uh, natives of the, the kingdom of Portugal uh, and indeed nobles of that, that kingdom uh, affirmed. And so the irony of this is that they, they have to to immobilize their Florentine identity in order to try to uh, secure their Portuguese identity. Well, that's perhaps a form of dual citizenship, but it also shows that you know, one could be born, for instance, in Portugal or Portuguese Brazil uh, and speak only Portuguese and primarily so and still somehow be permanently Florentine and they said it's actually quite hard to to switch citizenship the, the general sense we have is that things are much looser uh lower down the economic scale uh and that you say the the dockside world of of who is operating the sailing ships is is very multinational as are Europe's armies uh and that there's there's quite easy and regular labor migration um, not necessarily in in, a sort of formal legal or inclusive sense but the people are moving across frontiers um, quite a lot for work and that if you're not one of these sort of powerful um, international merchants or something that that many people are are sort of not fussed about it
1: was the ottoman empire a place that tuscany held in Reverence. Um, were they on the verge of political and economic violence? Would you say? Uh,
0: so they, there's a lot of contestation with the Ottomans. Um, so the I sort of misspoke earlier. It's, it's 1607 for Aruchovasi, and and that's a, a battle in which the the Ottoman vizier um, brings his army to to bear the Grand Vizier. Uh, on, on this rebel regime, this Ottoman rebel regime, um, and, and eventually destroys it uh, and reasserts Ottoman control in, in Syria. So what does that mean Tuscany was doing? Uh, Tuscany had signed deals with various rebels against the Ottoman regime in the hope of, of destroying the Ottoman Empire, which uh, the Tuscans describe as, as a great tyranny, uh, and, and a regime that, that needed to be destroyed, uh, not so that um, the Tuscans could acquire any land, but instead so that the Tuscans could uh, make deals with post-Ottoman successor states uh, and in, sort of arrange for a post-Ottoman space. So the, the Ottomans are, are of course the, uh, in some sense the, the the great uh, opponents from, from the Tuscan perspective. Of course, Tuscany is quite a minor, if very annoying player from, from the Ottoman perspective. Uh, the Ottoman Empire is, is uh, a vast and powerful regime and the grand Duchy of Tuscany is not. Um, but the Tuscans also repeatedly seek to sign a trade deal with the Ottomans and to, to come to a sort of modus vivendi. Uh, The problem here has to do with the decision in the 1560s to set up a uh, naval crusading order Um, in this way, very uh, similar to indeed modeled on on the Knights of Malta uh, that uh, makes a great deal of sense in the the politics of the 1560s when there's... um, naval warfare between the Spanish Habsburgs and their naval alliance and the Ottomans on a sort of annual basis. And, uh, there's a fair bit of Corsair raiding going on in both directions. And This order of Santo Stefano or the order of St. Stephen, uh, has important domestic, uh, political role in sort of, uh, as people like Giovanna Beneducci have shown, uh, integrating the Tuscan elite, um, uh, the problem is that the, the Grand Duke is sort of the, the head of this naval crusading order, and its primary target is the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and calling it off is is not something, you know, the Tuscans will offer it, but they don't in the end have uh, the ability really or the willingness either to, to shut down the order of Sanso Stefano uh, or, or to to suspend its operations, um, a, and as long as it's operating, the Ottomans are, are sort of una- you know, unwilling to do a deal. Not surprisingly, um, with a government which is sponsoring, what from the Ottoman perspective is sort of religious piracy. Um, so the Ottomans are uh, a, a key, um, they're a key power. They're uh, a a regime that the Tuscans are bitterly opposed to, but also uh, which they perceive as being in some sense the, the sort of greatest geopolitical threat and, and its destruction would be the, the greatest geopolitical opportunity. Uh, and because the Tuscans are unable, really unlike the Venetians, to, to cut a deal with the Ottomans, uh, they find themselves as sort of the friends of everybody who's opposed to the Ottomans. Uh, and for a little while in the 1600s, it looks like that's going to work out for them, uh, as the Ottoman regime is, is in a great deal of trouble, both internally and externally. But, but in the end, uh, the Ottoman Empire um, steadies itself, and gets through this, this crisis period, uh, and, that, and that leaves Tuscany uh, in a very weak position.
1: researchers or anyone else who's interested in your work, uh, what other scholars would you recommend that they reference for further study? Uh,
0: in the history of the Grand Duchy, uh, as I think I mentioned before, Corey Tatsara and, and Francesca Travolato have both done incredible work on Livorno. Uh, Liam Markey has a, a wonderful book called uh, Imagining the Americas in, in Medici. Uh, Florence and uh, I'm engaged in a a collaborative project uh, with two dozen other scholars on this uh, Florentine merchant adventurer, uh, Francesco Carletti, and co-editors for that are are Paula Finland, Luca Mola, and Giorgio Riello, all of whom have have important work. Um, More broadly, if we wanna think about internationally, uh, Sanjay Subramanian's work on global history has been a, a real uh, inspiration for me. He writes beautifully and copiously, it's well researched. Uh, I suppose one could go on and on, but uh, there is um, there's really a lot of uh, exciting work that that is um, is being done on the Grand Duchy of Tuscany specifically, but also on the sort of early modern global at, at this moment.
1: You do write about access to the New World, um, particularly Portugal, Brazil, and other uh, places, but why are there no Tuscany colonies across the Atlantic? Uh,
0: So it's an interesting question. Uh, In the sense of colonial spaces ruled directly by the Grand Duchy, and this is, I suppose, a central argument of the book, uh, it's ultimately a set of political choices. Uh, So the there are Tuscans who are really important players in the Portuguese empire. Uh, In the book, I I talk about the Giraldi and the Capocanti. These are important players in Brazil. And in fact, the the Giraldi do own a portion of the the Portuguese empire. They own it as a donatory captaincy, of course, under the crown of Portugal. Uh, But they they are, in fact, running um, a substantial chunk of territory. Uh, The Tuscans are offered the opportunity on a number of occasions by, in effect, Portuguese aristocrats or others who were engaged in the sort of Portuguese world to buy up bits of the the Portuguese empire or or rights to conquest, whether that's in Sierra Leone in West Africa or in Brazil uh, in Espirito Santo. Uh, And ultimately, their their politics don't work for this. That is that the the Spanish Habsburgs are are unwilling to uh, accept the the Grand Duke himself or one of the Medici as sort of vassals, that this is too uh, a bridge too far. Perhaps the Medici are not trusted enough, or uh, there's this sense that the, the loyalty might not be to the Spanish Habsburgs, but, but instead to Florence. And, you know, the Spanish and Portuguese are quite worried uh, about alienating their territory, right? In effect, selling off portions of the empire. Um, so the Tuscans also uh, send an expedition to to the Amazon and Orinoco, um, and there they're, they're looking for gold and for, for other precious goods. This is almost exactly contemporaneous with uh, Walter Raleigh and with English visions of Guyana, and in fact the expedition is staffed primarily by English sailors. Uh, working for the Grand Duke uh, and the the expedition is um, pretty typical uh, they don't find gold they do find other stuff uh, it doesn't look like it's going to be that economically promising originally uh, and it comes back and, and Ferdinando has has, uh, has not made it he's died in, in 1609 Um And the expedition's timing is is perhaps unfortunate in this regard. It's, of course, not clear what would have happened if Ferdinando had still been around to to push subsequent uh, expeditions. This is an absolutist regime, and and the the change of Grand Duke is is actually quite an important sort of policy inflection point, or can be. Um, So part of that is, is sort of contingencies of the court. But more broadly, Tuscany's strategic position is pretty constrained by what more powerful states are, are willing to, to let it do. And this is, is, is where it's worth remembering, my sort of the earlier point about the presidial states, that uh, there are Spanish garrisons on the, the coast of Tuscany. They're not large enough to threaten the regime, but they are certainly substantial enough to, to remind the Grand Duchy that uh, moving into open conflict with the, the Spanish or the Portuguese would be very costly, potentially. Um, and, uh, of course, there are these long wars between the Spanish and Dutch to, to underline how costly that, that can be. Uh, so uh, the, the Tuscans are interested in overseas territories, but not, in the end, willing to go to war with a major European power to achieve that. So whenever they get kind of warned off, they they back off rather than and try to fight for
1: it. And what about biographies in terms of citations in your work? Um, can you recommend first-hand, account, first-hand accounts of life inside Renaissance Tuscany?
0: So, yes. Uh, there's an autobiographical account of his circumnavigation by the Florentine uh, merchant adventurer Francesco Carlazzi that I mentioned on a couple of occasions. Uh, we're doing, in fact, I'm doing a, a new translation as part of uh, a broader project on Carletti, also doing an edited volume, uh, and hopefully that will be out in the next couple of years. Um, and Carletti uh, really goes everywhere uh, in the Spanish and Portuguese world. He, he goes uh, to Cape Verde and Cartagena, to Peru, uh, across the isthmus of Panama and Mexico, to the Philippines, to Japan and to China, to Macau in particular, uh, to Malacca and India, and essentially captured in a naval battle um, uh, by the Dutch at St. At Helena uh, in 1602, uh, and then comes back and, and sues the, the Dutch East India Company and, and gets a settlement from them, uh, and he comes back to, to Florence and serves at the, the Grand Duke of court, the Grand Duchy, uh, and the Grand Dukes have been their patrons, and, and the Grand Duchy becomes his home here. Um, so Carletti gives you a kind of autobiographical hand account. Um, Cory Tatsara has been working on a translation, they haven't been translated yet, but they should be out soon, of uh, Filippo Sassetti's letters. Uh, and, and Sassetti's correspondence from, from India and some of his correspondence in Europe is also... Um, uh, quite revelatory because is a much better educated individual than, than Carletti. And so uh, you, you have um, there's some literary style and, and uh, uh, sort of intellectual play uh, in Sussetti's letters that I mean that they've been widely known in Italy since the 19th century as a sort of examples of, of both literary letters, but also, of course, ones that give an insight into Sussetti's own um, very interesting life. So those are two examples.
1: And if you had to choose another region to write about as a research book of the same length and quality, uh, where would it be? During this,
0: oh, how fascinating! Um, I don't currently have the linguistic expertise, but I think the story of uh, Oman in in the sixteenth to nineteenth centuries is extremely interesting. Uh, in particular, there. Uh, successful in basically winkling the the Portuguese out of many of their bases, uh, both in the Middle East and in East Africa, and in building their own independent state with its own navy and trading regime. Um, And and of course, they do so in a period when our uh, focus is overwhelmingly on uh, the power of the European states and um, I think all, uh, similarly that the, the story of Morocco in the, in the 17th century would be extremely interesting. As I said, these are not areas that that are within my own sort of linguistic competency. But in terms of my own um, like, uh, linguistics, I guess my interest would be in Genoa. Uh, There's a, a long-standing bias in the historiography in favor of Venice. This is to do with uh, a, a very several 100 year olds uh, English-speaking preference for visiting Venice, uh, a preference for the stability and artistic grandeur of its regime as opposed to the sort of uh, political chaos that, that often prevailed in Genoa. And Genoa is, um, uh, it was and, and is, I suppose, a, a much more substantial uh, port than, than um, Venice has been for a long time. Uh, and and is a more rough and tumble kind of city in some ways, uh, but it's extraordinarily important in the 16th and early 17th centuries. Uh, with Genoa is described as as being in effect the sort of Wall Street of Europe. It's the major financial center. Uh, of course, Genoese uh, sailors play a really key role uh, in European overseas um, expansion and and. Uh, starting, of course, with Columbus, um, and kind of amazingly, uh, there's remarkably little uh, written about early modern uh, Genoa in spite of a, in English, in spite of a, a, a true abundance of sources there.
1: Do you have teaching strategies for either undergrads or graduates related to this book? It would make a great, great material for a world history seminar or anything. Oh,
0: well, thanks. Um, uh, I think that there are some themes that that can be can be pulled out there. Um, one is, you know, we talk about for, for you know, speaking of a world history seminar, this is a period of uh, to, to borrow a phrase that others have used: people's ideas and objects on the move. Uh, and I think having a particular place where you're sitting while watching the things move and understanding that it doesn't just happen i think that sometimes when we talk about the colombian exchange or we talk about early globalization or we talk about the cross cultural exchange of ideas that that these processes can be described as um seeming inevitable right as being uh, and having their own kind of Uh, internal logic. Likewise, our our story about this switch from the Mediterranean to the turn to the Atlantic, uh, we can speak in these kind of generalized terms that seem uh, as if there's no agency involved. And I think the story of the Grand Duchy and some of the stories that that I try to to tell in this book here uh, are about how people made you know, confronted with the, the opportunities that they saw in front of them, people made choices, some of which worked out and some of which didn't. And that the Political space for action, right? What sort of choices people are making um, has a really direct impact on and some contingencies. What were you know uh, uh, on the way in which uh, this sort of new global era plays out? Is it? It isn't just a, a question of well, some people were interested in the world and others weren't, or uh, well, you know, only, you know, some places had empires and everybody else was sort of unaffected. Uh, you know, the story of, of the Grand Duchy says, suggests that that's not the case. That, in fact, um, interest in the wider world is, is is quite widespread and that it has a, a pretty important impact um, in a place like Tuscany, which does not have an overseas empire or indeed any overseas Outpost, but is nonetheless, you know, profoundly implicated um, in in these sort of um, increasingly expansive projects of what has been described as as the first global age. Um, you know, so I think the, of course, as as a author, one always wants somebody to to sit down and read the book from start to finish. And, um, but there there are individual chapters here, and I know that it's available in JSTOR and so forth, which are, I think are, are in many ways um, teachable on a, on a freestanding basis, especially um, in, in part two uh, that might you know give you an opportunity to to follow up some of these um, global material, cultural intellectual history stories.
1: Where should the New Books Network audience look for more information on on you, or to expect uh, conference presentations? Or are you, you know, going to have any in person events?
0: Um, so uh, it's been a busy year for for conference things. Uh, less coming up. Um, so the the most sort of important project in progress is as I mentioned on a couple of occasions, uh, this Carlotti project. We had a big conference at Itati. Um, earlier this year. This is uh, the Harvard University Center for Italian uh, Renaissance Studies in Florence, which has been um, uh, the host for for uh, not just this conference, but more I was a research fellow. Uh, I'm engaged in, in two other edited volumes as a contributor, one on the, the Medici and the Perception of Sub-Saharan Africa, which is associated with the Medici Archive Project, where I, I gave a talk on on this book last year. And and another project, um, Medici Beyond Florence, associated with the Consistorius Institute in in Florence. Um, In in terms of the uh, where things are are, are, um, going, I mean, I think that the next thing to to expect is is uh, probably affiliated with um, with Carletti. I'll be presenting at the the European University Institute in, in November. Um, And and I I would expect um, that there'll be uh, a couple of other sort of opportunities like that.
1: Would you like to impart any final words to the New Books Network and also uh, what's next for you in terms of writing? Uh,
0: Well, I suppose first and foremost, I would like to to thank you for the opportunity to uh, speak at this length uh, about my book. And, uh, you know, I I suppose that the, the major... Um, argument in this book is associated with the Grand Duchy of Das Canis, uh, as a state um, political aspirations to uh, participate in the, the First Global Age and the ways in which politics stymies that. Coming out of that, I uh, came to, to appreciate that many of the private actors uh, who have referenced in, in the case of Brazil but are in fact widespread these um, often Florentine merchants, businessmen, and bankers based in uh, Brazil, and India, and uh, Macau, but also Mexico, and Lisbon, um, and Seville, uh, and and but also in in not just the, the Spanish and Portuguese world, but but in the, the Dutch and English world, in places like Amsterdam, uh, are actually much more successful than than the Grand Duchy. Um, precisely because they, they don't present such um, political challenges. So the, the new book project is really in many ways meant to be companion to this one. And I, I would hope once it's it's all written, which will take a little while, but um, to, to have the opportunity to, to share that as well. Uh, and, and that's provisionally entitled The Global Merchants of Florence. It's engaged with a question of the role of these private actors uh and and it has some sort of broader stories that it's really interested in the long-running story of family capitalism interested in contesting the notion that uh the arrival of limited liability companies and um the particular kind of capitalism that we associate with the northern european east india companies uh left the pre-existing mediterranean family capitalist system behind this is a much more complicated story i'm not looking into that uh, and i'm developing a set of uh stories also associated with intergenerational social mobility um and uh the preservation of wealth by by florentine patrician families um who are both deeply grounded in Tuscany, but also engaged in, in global trade. So that's that's probably where I'm going for the second monograph project. And then in closing, I would say that you know the thing that will come out more approximately is this this new translation of, of Francesco Carlatti's account of um, uh, his travels around the wider world and, and this edited volume that we're doing, which is provisionally entitled Trading at the Edge of Empires uh, on uh, Francesco Carlatti. So, um but above all, thank you for this opportunity.
1: New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, thank you for welcoming Brian Bregate to this podcast episode on history. Uh, stay tuned for more episodes like this one right here on NBN. Thank you, uh, Dr. Brege, and signing out. Thank you very much.